The passage we're looking at today from Matthew chapter 2 isn't covered by other gospel writers, and it's not even covered by Jewish historians. But what we need to remember is the context of what was going on. Herod was a man who created peace and prosperity for 30 years, which is why a lot of people just wanted to make sure he didn't get upset. He was a man who was a great leader, military leader, but yet very paranoid, with good reason. This is a man who murdered, or had put to death, when you're the king, you you know, you can execute people. A wife that he really loved. This is a man who executed three of his own sons. Now, evidently, historically, the reality was the three sons and the wife were trying to overthrow him, take power for themselves. And I find it interesting that in God's inspiration and wisdom, he should pick Matthew to tell the story. Remember who Matthew was? He was Jewish, but he was a tax collector. He was somebody who worked and made a profit by collecting taxes from Jewish people for the Roman government. He understood how power worked. And so God would use him to tell this story. About power and its misuse. Now, in summing this all up for us to walk away with, what I want to say to you this morning is let God's revelation light your family's way in dark times. I heard a member of the Scottish Parliament speak yesterday, and she says, one of the things that you have to remember is that you can never know exactly what the people that you represent believe or want. You can have very loud voices that may be a very small number of people. I don't know what creates darkness for you. Because there's so many different kinds of people. It might be a medical crisis, a financial crisis. In the United States, you read about people that these 800,000 workers who were not getting paid by the federal government because of this government shutdown. I went through a few of those, never, obviously never this long, because this is really long. One of the things about Herod who had been appointed king of the Jews, is that King Herod the Great, because you've got to, remember you have to sort through the Herods in the Gospels. King Herod the Great was the child of Esau, who plotted to kill Jesus, the child of Jacob, the heir, the seed of the covenant grace that would bless the world. 
See, when you look at Scripture sometimes, you forget how things are just woven together, how things are in the background that make it, it, it more powerful, a more powerful story. One of the things about this in relationship to God's revelation is that what you see an example here of having God's revelation and also having common or good sense. Remember, he hears by way of the angel, okay, it's time to come back. I told the children that I would tell them you can make make the donkey move back there on the story of coming back from Egypt. But he was afraid to go there. See, he, he knew the political landscape he was living in. That the sun was just as bad, because remember, the sun is the one who's going to send Jesus Christ to the cross with Pilate. The man who is reigning there, at this point. And so he's going, but he knows to fear, and so he rearranges, and it's interesting how Matthew tells us, he he rearranges where they're going to go back to, and it fulfills a scripture. Now, one of the things about these three vignettes that we get here is that all of them end with or have scripture as part of it. Two of them have the angel coming to speak. And so when we think about the power of, of Scripture, of God's revelation in our family life, we need to make sure that it is there and that it is informing our common or our good sense. In other words, very few of you are going to be told, oh, you need to move to Portree or you need to move someplace else. But God, God may give you an opportunity in a job that you have to prayerfully consider what to do. Um, But one of the things that we need to realize that in life and death, the promise of life is whispered over the noise of power. No matter how dark it gets, we still have the word of God. Now, in the center of these three vignettes is this story of Herod using his power to kill children. Most commentators believe it was between 20 and 30 children based upon the size of the town at the time. Remember, we'd had a census, so we know about the size of towns at that point. Historically, we can say, okay, 2,000 people lived in Bethlehem, and out of that, you create the percentages of, okay, you're going to have this many children, two and under. And that would be, and then you say, just the males. What I find very powerful is the quote that is used here from Jeremiah 31. That acknowledges the lament when a voice was heard in Ramah, Weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children, she refused to be comforted because they are no more. 
You see how scripture acknowledges lament, grief, sorrow that seems not to be done. But, see, if you were somebody at that time, you would recognize, oh, that's from a poem in Jeremiah 31. And if you go to your English Bibles, what's the headline? It says, from weeping from mourning to joy. Because what is this poem in preparation for in Jeremiah 31? The promise of the new covenant. So even in the midst of the death and destruction, because remember, what is Jeremiah getting his people ready for? Jeremiah 31 is written under siege, okay? The castle is surrounded by the bad guys. They know they're going to lose because the bad guys are really big. There's a lot of them. And after a while, when you're in a city that is surrounded, you know, you, they're not going to run out of water. They had a pretty good water supply, but they're going to run out of food. And you read about the horrible things that they did to try to survive. So this passage, when it talks about mothers mourning their children... It is getting them ready for what's going to happen before they are exiled. And so you have this passage that that Matthew quotes that is in the midst of this passage that acknowledges grief and lament and sorrow and loss, but yet almost shows you the promise that God is going to restore because he's going to keep his promises. Now, I don't do this very often, but I didn't want to print out everything. I wanted to actually read it from my Bible. Okay, Jeremiah 31, beginning to read at verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord, O nations. Declare it to the coastlines far away. Say, he who scattered Israel will gather him, that he will keep him as a shepherd for his flocks. For the Lord will ransom Jacob and redeem him from the hands too strong for him. They shall come and sing aloud in the height of Zion. They shall be radiant over the goodness of God, over grain, the wine, the oil, and over the young of the flock and the herd. Their life shall be like a watered garden, and they shall languish no more. Then the young women rejoice and dance, and the young men and the old shall be merry. I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them and give them gladness for sorrow. See, that's one of the verses surrounding us. That's one of part of this, this poem that God has given. Remember why I said why often the, I believe that the, the prophets use poetry? Because they would remember it better. They could take it into captivity. I mean, think about this in terms of our expect. you know, we, we want to write God's story, but when we read God's story, we find things that are very hard. Imagine having this promise of the new covenant while you're under siege before you're going to be led away captive to another land. To trust in God's word. That he's going to turn, what does it say? I will turn their mourning into joy. 
I want to read you something at the end of chapter 31. Got to get new glasses. These, these are the right prescription, but I just can't get them to stay in my nose. Okay. Do you think of this as a gospel promise? Verse 40 in chapter 31, the whole valley of dead bodies and ashes in all the fields as far as the brook of Kidron to the corner of the horse gate towards the east shall be sacred to the Lord and it shall not be plucked up or overthrown anymore. The graveyards were going to be sacred to the Lord. That even in death, God could proclaim the area where where they were to be sacred. See, sometimes God wants us to wait. See, one of the things that, in looking at this set of verses in Matthew, I want to encourage you that every time you have a quote from the Old Testament, it drives you back to the context. Because if you just read about this wonderful lament, this expression of sadness, this expression of identifying loss that is there from Jeremiah, but not put it into the context that God gave his word. See, see, we are so used to taking words, taking things, and bringing them down to, you know, we used to say a tweet was 140 characters, I guess it's 280 now or whatever, but uh, memes or things like that, we want to shrink it. But you see, if you don't let God give you the context that he speaks it in, you're going to miss his grace, his wonder, so that he can be a God who can identify with the deepest and most tragic loss. You know, at the beginning of the week, I was thinking about this and saying, oh, how do you talk about 30 children dying? And then I remember the images that we see from Yemen and from Syria, from Africa and from other places where it's in the thousands. You see these shriveled little bodies on the news. And see, some of us have been in places that when you get to a certain point, you know that no matter what you're going to do, that child can't recover because their body is so damaged by malnutrition, they're not going to live. So the darkness of loss of children and others is there in the world that we live in. We feel like we can't control it. But yet God gives us comfort. God speaks to people in their greatest loss, weeping in loud lamentation, refusing to be comforted. Some of you have been there. Some of you may be there now. But yet I want you to read the larger text 
the larger promises of God that we can sit with you, we can be with you in this time of weeping and lamentation. Now the last part that I want to look at is that sometimes you have to relocate to stay safe. You know, that's hard for people to pick up their roots and have to leave because it's not safe. There are millions of people all around the world moving, leaving where they are because it's not safe. Sometimes there's a story that captures our imagination. This young woman from Saudi Arabia who was in Australia, went to Thailand, and then there was this media thing, and the United Nations Human Refugee Commissioner said, yeah, she really is a refugee, and Canada said, come be a Canadian. Americans find that humorous, but... Because she really believed, because she denounced Islam, that her parents would kill her. And I really believe that that's true. Sometimes you have to relocate to stay safe. Now, one of the things about the story of going to Egypt, from a personal perspective, in Egypt, in old Cairo, and that I find, every time I say that, I find that humorous to say old Cairo. But there are new parts and there are old parts. There is a synagogue that you, you literally, you walk down eight feet of stairs to get to where it is, that they believe that's where Mary and Joseph and Jesus would have worshipped in Cairo when he was there. Now remember the great Jewish immigration to Egypt when, you know, as part of the story of Jeremiah? God said, don't go there, don't go there. But they went anyway. And they took Jeremiah and that's where he died. So it was this large Jewish community. Part of that Jewish community in the year 200 B.C. translated, we think of it as the first translation, translated the Hebrew Bible into Greek. Now, I won't make, you know, if you're in high school or or, or secondary school, I won't make you say, okay, why in 200 would you speak Greek in in Egypt? Remember the guy named Alexander? The Ptolemies? Anyway, so you have this large Jewish community that they could have just disappeared into. Rise, take this child and his mother and flee to Egypt to remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. In China, they are taking children away from religious parents, from Christians, from Muslims. When I was in Afghanistan, I worked with uh, Romanian troops And you have to appreciate the irony of this. You have Romanian troops that are there in Afghanistan who were there with the Russians when the Russians invaded before the wall came down and all of that. So they were there 
with the Russians, now they're there with NATO. But they said that the Taliban did the same thing the Soviets did. They separated children. They got children to spy on their parents. They worked on getting children not to be religious. And so people, need, they needed to flee. He rose up, took his child, the child, the mother, and departed for Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. Now, I'm going to read you a sentence that I want you to have a little alarm in your head go off every time you hear something like this. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. When you hear that, my son, you should think of the covenant, you should think of God's prophets. When you go back and you look at Hosea, now, this is from Hosea 11. When you look at this verse, in the original writing, and, and again, you're going to get used to this, because most of the prophets are poets. See, most people, when they think about Hosea, they think about the first three chapters of narrative because it's all about adultery. It's about children being born out of wedlock. But God says, you be faithful, you be faithful. Even though she's unfaithful, you be faithful. Because God is faithful to us when we are unfaithful. God is faithful to the child that is born out of wedlock. But see, in this context, when you look from four onward, this this basically love poem. Now, this love poem was written before both Israel and Judah fell. Because in Hosea 1, the whole verse, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Do you see how Jesus is being identified with the people of Israel, with God's people? When you look at the words, when you hear the connection, because of redemption, called my son out of Egypt. Now see, in the Jewish mind, that would have bring all kinds of bells because Egypt was a place that God had said, you're going to have your children, grandchildren, and all those people spend 400 years, they're going to become slaves, and then I'm going to call them out. Imagine having God say, this is going to be your family dynamics, your family history for the next 400 years. And I'm going to redeem you. See, the Bible teaches us again and again that our relationship with God is not dependent on our circumstances. I don't have to be healthy, wealthy, or wise. That it's based on him. He calls me out. And in here, in this passage, the idea that should come into your mind out of Egypt, I called my son, is the idea that God adopts us because he loves us. He brings us into his family. He calls us his children. 
Because just as he is identifying Jesus Christ with the people of Israel, so we are identified with Jesus Christ and the people of Israel. Remember the passages we read for the assurance of pardon from Galatians? About Abraham and by faith and all of that. So I don't know how dark your family life is. I don't know how dark your world is. How uncertain it is. See, I have to be very careful because I have a, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll admit to something. I'm Fred, I'm a news addict. I watch too much news because it can overwhelm me. You watch the news and you think everything wrong is going to happen. Rather than making sure it's the word of God that guides my thoughts in the way I look at life. And to realize that I am a child of God because he has called me. That as the world changes, as the world gets dark and things seem to be out of our control, that I can hear God's voice and I can know that I am his child and he has called me. He has called me in Christ. And so, I want to end by offering you conversation about whether you see yourself as a child of God. Do you see yourself as someone who has faith, someone who trusts in God for their salvation, someone who looks to him in however your world may be confusing and uncertain, that you can have that certainty and say that my father has called me to be his child. Talk to me. Let me pray before we sing. Father, many times our lives seem so uncertain. But you are there and you are certain and your word is certain. We know that it's not our circumstances that demonstrate that we are children of God, but it is your word who tells us that you loved us first, you called us first. Father, we pray that people would not think they're alone, that they would not allow the darkness around them to overcome them, to paralyze them, that indeed your light would guide our families, would guide our relationships. That no matter what we hear from the world, we would hear your word. Your grace, your promises. That out of the worst of circumstances, whatever our Egypt might be, you call us. In Christ, you call us. We pray these things, Jesus, in your most precious name. Amen. <laughs>